Hey, this is Sean Leary here reporting from the LULAC Club. QC Uncut. Andrew Yang has just been announced, and we're going to be bringing to you live and uncut Andrew Yang from the LULAC Club. Being back in Iowa. Thank you so much. Love you too. How many, how many of you have seen me speak before? Let's try that. Wow, oh, good time. How many of you have seen TV ads with my face on them? Nice. Good, we spent a lot of money on those. <laughs> we are pumped for this caucus on February 3rd because you can turn this country in a whole new direction. You can actually rewrite the rules of the economy to work for us, our kids, our families, because they're not working for us right now. They're working for these big companies that are sucking us dry. That's why Donald Trump won Iowa, a purple state, by almost 10 points. That people looked around and said, the future we're leaving to our kids is not as bright, secure, and prosperous as the lives we've led or the lives that they deserve. Now most of you know, I'm concerned that our economy is transforming before our eyes. That we lost Iowa by almost 10 points because we blasted away 40,000 manufacturing jobs that were in this state. And where else were the manufacturing jobs that we eliminated over the last number of years? Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri. And if this list of states sounds familiar, why is that list so familiar? These are all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win and did win. And unfortunately, what we did to those manufacturing jobs, we are now doing to retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, and on and on through the economy. How many of you noticed stores closing around where you live here in Davenport? And why are those stores closing? Everybody wants to shop online slash Amazon. That's right. Amazon is soaking up $20 billion in business every year, closing 30% of our stores and malls. Most common job in the economy is retail clerk. 39-year-old woman making between $8 and $12 an hour. When her store closes, what is her next job? How much did Amazon pay in taxes last year? Zero. That is the math, Davenport. $20 billion out. 30% of your stores close, you get zero back. You can see the changes around us, the self-serve kiosks and the fast food restaurants, but it's very pervasive in ways you don't even think about. When you all call the customer service line of a big company and you get the software bot on the other end, I'm sure you do the same thing I do. Which is you pound zero, 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 say human, 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 representative, representative, human. And do you get someone on the line? Raise your hand if that's what you do. Oh yeah, we all do that. We're all like, this company employs a human somewhere and I'm going to find that person right now. But in two or three short years, the software is gonna sound like this. Hello, Andrew, how are you? What can I do for you? It'll be fast, seamless, efficient, what will that mean for the two and a half million Americans who work at call centers right now, making between 10 and $14 an hour? How many of you all know a truck driver here in the state? Most common job in 29 states, three and a half million truckers. My friends in California are working on trucks that can drive themselves. They say they're 98% of the way there. A robot truck just transported 20 tons of butter from California to Pennsylvania three weeks ago with no human intervention. Why did they choose butter for this maiden voyage? I have no idea. <laughs> but if you Google robot butter truck, you will see the story. And at the end of the route was a giant stack of pancakes in Pennsylvania. Everything I just said is true except for the pancake part. I made that one up. 
What will this mean for the three and a half million Americans we all know who drive a truck for a living, or the seven million Americans who work at truck stops, motels, and diners that rely upon the truckers getting out and having a meal? You all go to Iowa 80 right here in Davenport all the time, and it says very proudly, 5,000 people stop there every day. How many people will stop there if the trucks don't have drivers in a number of years? A lot fewer than 5,000. So this is what got Donald Trump into the White House. And I saw this myself because I worked for the last seven years helping to create thousands of jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I saw firsthand the aftermath of the automation and manufacturing jobs in Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And I'm friends with some of the people that are working on the technologies that are just now accelerating and speeding up. I felt like I was pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. Water's rushing out. It helped get Donald Trump into the White House. And unfortunately, our country doesn't even understand what's happening to it. When's the last time you heard a politician even say the words, fourth industrial revolution? Three seconds ago. And I'm barely a politician. I really am. My wife can attest to the fact that if she thought I was going to run for president when we were dating, she would have run the other direction. <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur who spent time trying to do right by the country over the last seven years, and I saw that the changes are going to be much, much bigger and hairier than anyone's letting on. And my first move was to go to our leaders in Washington, D.C., and ask them, how are we going to help our people manage this transition, this economic transformation, this fourth industrial revolution? And what do you think the folks in D.C. said to me when I said, what are we going to do? At another event, someone made that Scooby-Doo noise, like, I'm not very good at it, obviously. But the three here, bro, bro. But the three responses I got most commonly were these. Number one, we cannot talk about this. Number two, we should study this further. And number three, this one will be familiar. We must educate and retrain all Americans for the jobs of the future. How many of you have ever heard something like that? Oh yeah, we've all seen that. That's a very politician type statement, right? And it sounds kind of responsible, but I'm the numbers guy. I went looking at the numbers. Do you all want to guess how effective the government funded retraining programs were for the manufacturing workers who lost their jobs in the Midwest? You know they're low because I'm anchoring you low. <laughs> but you also know they're low because you know people. You know if you have hundreds of manufacturing workers who lose their jobs, they don't all march out and be like, oh, I'm here for my coding boot camp. <laughs> I'll be coding in no time. I mean, that's not reality. The success rates were between 0 and 15%. They were a total dud. The reality is almost half of the manufacturing workers who lost their jobs left the workforce and never worked again. Of that group, almost half filed for disability. You then saw surges in suicides and drug overdoses to the point where America's life expectancy has now declined for the last three years in a row. First time in 100 years that's happened. Last time was the Spanish flu of 1918. You have to go back 100 years to a global pandemic because it's highly unusual for your life expectancy to decline in a developed country. It ordinarily just keeps going up and up because you're getting richer, stronger, healthier. But in America, it's gone down and then down and then down again. So when I said this to the folks in DC, one of them said, well, I guess we'll get better at the retraining programs. Another person said something that brought me here to you all today, Davenport. He said, Andrew, you're in the wrong town. 
No one here is going to do anything about this because fundamentally this is not a town of leaders, this is a town of followers. And the only way we will do something about it is if you were to create a wave in other parts of the country and bring that wave crashing down on our heads here in DC. And I said, challenge accepted. I'll be back in two years. Now Davenport, you may not know this, but you are the wave. That's why I'm so pumped to be here. What are we, 11 days to voting? You may not know this, but you are among the most powerful people in our country today. I did the math. Do you know how many Californians each of you is worth? <laughs> 1,000 Californians each. So look around this room today. How many of us are there? I'm going to give a Trumpian estimate. There are 1,000 people in this room. It's the biggest room anyone's ever seen. In real, in real life, I think there are about 200 people here today. But 200 Iowans is like five football stadiums full of Californians. That's the power to do something that the rest of the country only dreams about. They look up and they see our government as a series of pipes clogged with millions and millions of dollars of lobbyist cash. And they say there's nothing they can do about it. They're right. Americans are pretty savvy. They can't do anything about it, Iowa, but you can. You can flush the pipes clean just like that in 11 short days. So what does flushing the pipes clean look like? Well, first you need someone in the White House that doesn't owe the corporate interests a dime. We raised $16.5 million last quarter in increments of only $35 each. So my fans are almost as cheap as Bernie's. <laughs> but there was no corporate money in there. It's all just grassroots uprising the people to take back our government and make it work for us again. Because right now, our government is not listening to us. You have corporate profits going up and life expectancy going down. Which is more important? We know our lives are more important, but that's not the truth in D.C. They can only see the dollar signs. Washington, D.C. today is the richest city in our country. Think about that for a second. What do they produce? No one knows. But business is awfully good. Donald Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp. I want to do something a little bit different, Davenport. I want to distribute the swamp. Why would you have hundreds of thousands of employees in the most expensive city in the country? Why wouldn't you move some of those jobs to Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa? You would save billions of dollars off the bat. And I would argue that your regulators and agencies would make better decisions because they'd actually live someplace normal instead of being in a DC bubble just looking at each other. I'm for term limits for members of Congress. We should be sending these people to D.C. to work for us, do our work, and then come home. Their job should not be to go there and crouch as long as possible and be like, let me stay here, let me stay here, I like it here, I like it here. No, and I know how we can pass it, Davenport. This is going to be like magic. I'm going to be your president a year from now. Thank you for that. And then I'm going to go to Congress and say, hey, it's time for 12-year term limits for all members of Congress but current lawmakers are exempt. Do you think they'll pass that? They pass that the next day. They'd be like, we do this for the American people. <laughs>
Because then they'd be like, oh good, I'm exempt, I can just make this happen. But eventually they'd lose and get phased out and then we'd have a legislature that actually responds to us. We're getting all these messages about how great things are. Corporate profits up, GDP up, headline unemployment looks great. But you know what else are at record highs in this country aside from corporate profits? Stress, anxiety, depression, financial insecurity, student loan indebtedness, substance abuse, overdoses, suicides. You know what are at record lows right now in the United States? Starting a business if you're a young person, getting married, having kids. All the things you associate with a good, healthy, prosperous society are now at multi-decade or record lows. This is what we have to change. We have to actually change these economic measures to center around how we are doing. Say to the rest of the country on February 3rd, the economy works for us. We don't exist for the economy. And I know how messed up our economic measurements are because of my own family. My wife Evelyn is at home with our two boys every day, one of whom is autistic. How much is her work calculated at in our economic measures? Evelyn and every stay-at-home parent throughout our country gets a zero. How about caregivers who are taking care of ailing loved ones? Zero. How about volunteers and activists who are trying to do positive things? How about coaches and mentors trying to invest in the next generation? How about 95% of artists? I hate to say it. <laughs> and, and here's one you don't think about, but it's really tough. How about local journalists? We have put almost 2,000 newspapers out of business over the last number of months. 200 counties in the United States no longer have a paper in that county. You know what does not function as well if you don't have local news? Democracy. Because how can you vote on what's going on in your community if no one's actually covering what's going on in your community? These are the things that we claim to value most as a country, our families, our communities, our democracy, and they're getting zeroed out one by one by one. They're getting zeroed out because we have been somehow collectively convinced that the market tells us how much we're worth. And if the market says something valueless, then I guess it shouldn't exist. That's how you wind up with reasonable people saying that you should turn thousands of coal miners into coders. Which makes no sense if you reflect on it for a moment. The only way it makes sense is if you say, well, the market tells us what your value is, and so if the market thinks you have no value now, then we have to pretend we can transform you into something that does have value. What we have to say to the rest of the country on February 3rd is that we each have intrinsic value as Americans, as shareholders of the richest country in the history of the world, and as human beings. This is a vision of a trickle-up economy that we can make real just like that. We can take all of this value that's getting depleted out of our communities and bring it back, put it into your hands. Particularly because after this money's in your hands, where does it actually go? How much of it would stay right here in Davenport and in Iowa? Most of it, not all of it. Some of it would float up. You might get your own Netflix password. Never. <laughs> You're like, never. <laughs> He's like, it's a matter of principle. I will never have my own. But most of it would go to car repairs you've been putting off, and daycare expenses, and little league sign-ups, and nonprofits and religious organizations. This is what we can make happen, just like that, on February 3rd. 
Donald Trump is our president today because he had a very simple message. He said he was going to make America great again. What did Hillary Clinton say in response? America's already great. Remember that, Dad, important? It's been a long three years, I know. But it is coming to an end. That response did not go over well with millions of Americans because the fact is the problems are real. We have to acknowledge their depth and severity and reality, but then we need solutions that will actually move our country forward. We'll humanize our economy and make it work for us and our families. What were Donald Trump's solutions? Build a wall, turn the clock back, bring the old jobs back. Davenport, you know we have to do the opposite of these things. We have to turn the clock forward. We have to accelerate our economy and society to rise to the real challenges of the 21st century, like climate change. We have to evolve in the way we see ourselves and our work and our value. I am the ideal candidate for this job because the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. Thank you all very much. You may not know this Davenport, but math is an acronym. And what does it stand for? Make America think harder. That's right. That is your job to move this country we love so much. Not left, not right, but forward on February 3rd. And I know that's just where you'll take us. Thank you very much. Let's caucus. Let's provide a future we're proud of for our kids. And let's win this whole thing. Thank you. And now we're going to do, how many of you watch the local news? All right, how many of you want to be on the local news? <laughs> so a local news crew right now is going to film a Q&A with, uh, with us, and then you'll be in the background, and then I'll come back and take some questions. That'll be a little fun. It'll be like an interlude. So uh, hopefully you can tell your friends. We're going to be on, what is it, the Fox affiliate? Uh, local 4 News CBS. Local 4 News CBS. All right. If we could ask everyone to stand up and face that way. Ethan on this side and Lacey on that side are going to be handing out placards here in the front for you to hold and smile with. And right after that, we're going to take some questions from Andrew and go back to Q&A. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> That was Andrew Yang giving his presentation here to a crowd of about a thousand people here at Lulac Club in Davenport. We're going to stick around. They're doing a Q&A here with Andrew, and so we're going to um, record that as well as part of our QC Uncut coverage. Again, this is Sean Leary. And... Um, very electrified crowd here. A lot of young people, very diverse crowd. A lot, a lot of young people here. Um, and so it's been a fascinating uh, talk from Andrew. Raised a lot of really interesting points and did so with good humor, which is something that you don't often hear out on the campaign trail. There tend to be uh, a lot of very serious and um, speeches that are trying to inspire and fire people up. Andrew, very lighthearted, a lot of good uh, humor along with this message. So it's kind of a unique way of presenting it. And uh, we're going to hear, as I mentioned, some questions here. Any second? We're in the midst of 
waiting for the camera crews from the local TV stations to kind of set up. Everybody's very quiet, waiting for the cameras to go live, asking various people questions here. <laughs> Setting everything up. And here's a behind-the-scenes look at what happens between the candidate being on stage and doing a Q&A for television. I have to set everything up, wait for the prompt from the newscast to come over. So. Prompt to get the signs up and going in the background. expectations for caucus. We've been growing faster than any other campaign. We're going to grow and grow and peak at the right time just when the voting starts on February 3rd. Dave Chappelle's coming into the state to have a show for us on June 28th. Uh, the excitement's growing and we think we're going to do tremendously well on caucus night. Do you have a number where you have to finish to, to sustain the campaign after Iowa? Well, you know how it is, Jim. We just have to exceed expectations. Uh, expectations are here. We're going to be somewhere up here. You, you're very well known as the guy who wants to give everybody a thousand dollars a month. We've covered that certainly at length. One of the policies that I find kind of interesting that you have is you want to give the president a raise, four million dollars a year. And you said you wouldn't do that necessarily for yourself, but for every president after you. Why do you think the president should be paid four million dollars a year? Well, I think the president should be banned from getting paid speech money after they leave office for the rest of their lives uh, because we need a president that we know works for us and is not looking out for uh, CEOs and companies that can pay them speaking fees after they leave. So this can take effect the president after me, I don't care, but we have to turn our government around so it works for us and not the special interests and the companies that have had been their run of DC for years now. We've seen a lot of your polling numbers, you're doing incredibly well with younger voters. The older voters, not necessarily as strong. What do you need to do to close that gap to get more older Americans behind you? Well, we just need to get the message out to Americans here in Iowa that we can do better for all generations. We have a retirement crisis among older Americans. People are rationing drugs and they can't afford prescription drugs because the prices keep on going up and up. We have to break the backs of the drug lobbies, get our costs under control, and see to it that Americans can retire with dignity. What's this ride been like for you over the last year? I mean, all the pundits would have basically said you had no chance, and we've seen you know, more than two dozen Democrats get in the race, and most of them have come and gone now. Only 12 of you remain, and you're still here. Well, people here in Iowa sense that we need to turn it around. We need to actually leave a future we're proud of for our kids. And you can look around us here, Jim, that you can see the message is going loud and clear here in the state. It's one reason why we're so excited about February 3rd. What's that been like for you personally to see that growth? Uh, it's been fun. Uh, you know, no one knew who I was when I showed up here in the state initially, but, but now, thanks to the TV ads and other things, 
uh, everywhere we go, people are shouting Yang Gang uh, and uh, excited about um, creating a new way forward for us and our families. The math man himself, make America think harder. Andrew Yang, good luck with the rest of the way. Enjoy talking with the Zimi. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Yang Gang. <laughs> And the TV crews are through with their Q&A. That was News 4 and Fox 18, slash Fox 18, same people, um, doing their live feed for their newscast. And now Andrew is going to be taking some questions from the audience. So we're going to stick around and listen to the Q&A. What do you have to say to the audience? Get his attention, and then he will amplify your voice. I'm Carol Hathbard, and I, um, I just have a question about your uh, one of your technological um, things that you want to do is to increase G5, 5G. Okay. <laughs> and I'm wondering, um, I have concerns about the health effects of that. And I'm wondering how you would protect us from that. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate the question so much. Before we get to 5G, we need to make sure that every American who wants it has access to broadband, particularly those in rural parts of the country. And this is very, very easy to make happen. All you have to do is go to the cable companies and the infrastructure companies and say, okay, how much does it cost you to put this pipe the last 40 miles or whatever you don't want to do? And then we will subsidize it and then get paid back over time. Now this is a different matter than 5G. 5G is this next generation spectrum technology that has a wealth of potential. And I believe that the US needs to maintain its leadership in this field because if we get surpassed by the Chinese in particular who have a native advantage in 5G because they have the, this company they subsidized for $75 billion called Huawei that has this equipment that's uh, the most cost efficient in this space. If we let them leapfrog us in this, then we're going to have a really, really tough uphill climb in terms of remaining economically competitive. Now, I am with you in the sense that I'm a parent. I've got two young boys who are four and seven. I would never let any technology get rolled out that had negative health effects on our kids. And we should know that when it comes to these kinds of technologies, it's our kids who are the most sensitive. So you have my word that we won't roll out anything if there's even a shred of uncertainty that there are going to be negative health effects for our children in particular. But I think we need to maintain our global competitiveness, and this is going to be a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, Lacey, sure. Oh, that's fun. Hello. Hi, I'm Camilla Fallen from Davenport, Iowa. And I have a question about the nuclear industry. Um, my husband, as well as many, um, at least 100,000 people that are um, that work in the field, um, are nervous about them doing away with it, even though it is zero emissions. Um, and uh, we are technically a nuclear family. Um, so Pun intended, a nuclear family. But I'm pumped. Is that fun? I am, mar I am married to Homer Sensen, and yes, my name is Marge, so. Um, <laughs> Um, basically, uh, one uh, turbine um, equals to 1,000 windmills. 
um, and the windmills that they um, they received all 176 billion dollars in building them, yep. and they are not environmentally friendly. They are now being destroyed, and they are um, clogging up our landfills because they were made out of non-recyclable products. And people are not awake to see this. What would you do to help make sure that if we're going to put windmills up, they're not going to clog our landfills? And what would you do to protect our nuclear industry? Because they do power us up, and especially in the summertime. Is, is it Camille? Camellia. Camellia. I believe I'm the only Democratic candidate in the field that believes that nuclear energy has to be part of our energy future. And the reality is we're a very energy-intensive country, and other countries have had great success with nuclear energy. The next-generation nuclear reactors can do even more, where thorium, as a fuel source, it's not intrinsically radioactive. You can't make a weapon out of it. It degrades faster than uranium. So there are things that we can work towards that can make a huge difference for us moving forward. It certainly breaks my heart to hear that these windmills were made out of uh, material that is not environmentally friendly. Uh, I would argue that that's one of the main virtues of these windmills is that they're supposed to be good for the environment. And so I would love to see to it that we're not constructing these windmills out of materials that are in some ways defeating the purpose of the windmills. But I'm pro-nuclear energy. I believe it needs to be part of our future. And I believe that the resistance to it is born more of, frankly, some out-of-date um, information and fears um, than it is the facts. Uh, I consider myself a facts and science guy, and the facts and science are positive for nuclear energy in our future. Hello. My name is Jasmine Newtonbutt. I am actually president of LULAC Council 10, and on behalf of LULAC, we just wanted to thank you for coming here tonight and present you with a shirt. Oh, thank you. Is this a whole So uh, I'm going to uh, just share some news. I'm going to be endorsed in the next day or two by John Leguizamo. So hopefully that's exciting to people who, uh, uh, who want to activate the Latino community politically. Uh, I'm a huge fan of John Leguizamo. I was very excited to get this news. Why is it all the fun people are joining the Yang Gang all the time? Let's <laughs> see. Uh, but thank you for that. And congratulations on your activism in the community because we need to activate more Latinos in particular to know that this country needs you. This country is your country. Uh, Mike's. Raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, I appreciate you, bro. I mean, I'll just give you my mic. We'll see what happens. You're actually being friendly. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Kelly Summers and I'm a stay-at-home mom. And um, I see a lot of moms my age starting to homeschool their children. And it's kind of twofold. One, they want to have more of a nurturing, creative environment to foster for their children. But two, I think it's fear-based because of um, the strict requirements in schooling these days and education and the fears of guns and all types of things. 
And it's a struggle that I have because selfishly, I want the time away from my kids sometimes, and I want to send them to school. Yeah, you're, no, you're not alone, Kelly. Um, you're not alone. <laughs> but I do see the importance and value of if I were to have them at home. So I would love to see education shift towards having more creativity fostered and less testing requirements. Do you have a plan in place, and feasibly, how long do you think that that would take to roll out across the U.S.? Thank you, Kelly. Give her a round of applause. I gotta say, I have friends who homeschool their kids, and if you homeschool your kids, then it's this huge act of love because it is so much work. <laughs> you know, it's like you would never do it unless you thought that it was truly the best thing for your kid. As a parent, I've got two boys who are seven and four. The older is in a special needs school, uh, and then the younger is in public school. And I think I speak for 99% of parents where our impulse is to bring our kids to the local public school as long as the public school is good for them. Like, that's what we all want for our kids. It's like, let's just bring them to the local public school. And then sometimes, unfortunately, the public school doesn't feel like a good fit for any of a number of reasons. And you cited at least one or two of them. So here are a few things that I would want to do to our public schools to help make them, hopefully, a little bit more universally appealing and supportive. Number one, we should pay teachers more money. And, and this isn't a feel-good thing, this is just a data thing. A good teacher is worth their weight in gold in terms of improved educational outcomes over the lifetime. You do the math on that and you should be like, oh, teachers, you should be getting paid more. The same token, we should have more resources and teachers in the schools. So you don't have elevated student-to-teacher uh, ratios and that kids who, frankly, need some more support can get them without having uh, like a teacher who you know, like doesn't have that kind of attention. The third thing is we need to lighten up on the standardized tests. <laughs> We have to stop treating our schools like they're assembly lines for our kids and start treating our kids like human beings. And the standardized tests are a big part of this. Did you know that we popularized the SAT during World War II as a means to identify which kids not to send to the front lines? And now we treat our kids like every year is wartime. Like, let's just test them. It's bad for the kids, it's bad for the teachers. The teachers know that it's changing their behavior in the classroom. And then if you let them try and do right by the kids, they would be doing things differently. So here are some of the changes I would make I would want to make. And I believe you can get some of these changes across the you know the school districts very, very quickly. Now I'm not someone who thinks the federal government should be dictating a lot of this stuff, but I do think the federal government should be putting resources in place. So as one example of something that's already in place, Congress said years ago that they would fund forty percent of the special needs education needs in schools. So that's people like, like my son who need more support. It being DC, we actually fund 15%. I'm saying we should fund 100% and just take it off the backs of communities. So if you got that done, that would actually be felt in the schools relatively quickly because the schools will look up and be like, oh, looks like now we have budget for like you know this speech pathologist, this special needs teacher. There are a lot of adults who want to do that work, for sure. It's just without the resources in the schools. So I think we can get that done pretty quickly. I think we can lighten up on the standardized test pretty quickly. Some of the bigger changes that I want to see done would take a little bit more time. I think we should have more social and emotional learning in schools, more arts in schools. Uh, financial literacy, for one, that's a little more boring. But, but these are things that actually have positive effects on people's lives. And I will say, too, you all know I want to give everyone a thousand bucks a month starting at age 18. Um, so one of the things I've, I've learned is that you can't teach someone financial literacy if they don't have money. You know, it's just impossible. So if you go to high school kids and say, hey, 
great news. Your country's going to invest in you starting at age 18. You take a financial literacy class first half of your senior year. You start getting the dividend somewhere in there. And then your senior spring, we send you to another part of the country for a month to live and work, just learn about yourself and other Americans. And we know you're not going to learn anything senior spring right now anyway. So we might as well give you a little bit of exposure. That this would be transformative for many, many young people to feel like they actually have a firm footing in the future and we're investing in them. The other thing we need to do at the high school level, and your kids sound younger than this, is we need to invest in technical, trade, and vocational programs and stop pretending like all of our kids are going to go to college, because they are not. Right now, only 6% of American high school students are in trade programs. In Germany, that's 59%. Think about that gulf. And we're, we're missing a lot of opportunities, because there are a lot of jobs that are, in a, that are going unfilled, because our kids aren't getting that kind of pathway. And we know exactly how it works in America today. We just do whatever the easiest thing is. So if you have kids and textbooks and a teacher, you can pretend they're going to go to college. That's easier. That's cheaper. You know what's harder? Actually getting a trainer and equipment and shop and employers and like try and train them in like real skills. That's harder. But that is what we need to do as a country. So as your president, I will team up with Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs and go around and say these jobs are awesome, we need to like let kids know that these pathways are great, and then we will take federal resources and say any school that wants to ramp up its apprenticeship or trade programs, we will fund it, uh, and then hopefully we can invest in those paths. So these are so those changes would take a little bit longer, but hopefully we can get more resources and support into schools, and we could certainly pay teachers more pretty quickly if that money was coming at the federal level. Well, really, shout, shout out to you, because I know no one homeschools their kids unless it's like an act of love of the highest level, because I love my kids, but, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, the parents know. All right. The rest of you are like, what a terrible person. <laughs> this will be our last question, Andrew. Good to meet you, sir. Uh, my name is Evan. I'm an economics major at Bradley University in Peoria. Uh, so please visit us. Um, my question is more about representation in government. Um, back in the early stages of America, uh, there is about 30,000 Americans per representative. Nowadays, there's about 700,000 Americans per representative. There's only 435 people in Congress. Um, do you think there needs to be more representation of government to better uh, represent the needs and uh, just demographics in America? What a great question. I love that. Our democracy right now is struggling in a way that might be unprecedented. And what you're saying is part of it, is that there was a period point not that long ago where people felt like, oh, you know, call my congressman. Like, uh, you know, I feel like I have a say in my national government. Whereas now we know that everything revolves around money. Like at, at this point, that if you have enough money, then you can run for Congress successfully. You need more money than that to run for Senate successfully. And that the individual citizen doesn't feel like that legislator is actually really accountable to them. We have theater that makes it seem like we're accountable, but we're not really. And when I say we, I mean I'm not a guy. I'm not like an official. <laughs> I'm just like a, saying that if you're a legislator at this point, you have the, the money on this side and the people on this side, and the money's getting more and more powerful. 
So what you're describing is like, hey, maybe if you had higher legislator to population ratio and the number of constituents were lower, then that would actually help. And that's a really, really interesting suggestion. Right now, people are struggling because the representation levels vary um, across different states, different types of districts. But I agree with you that we need to invigorate our democracy in unprecedented ways. We have to actually make it feel like it's our government again. And I've got a whole set of suggestions that I think would help. Number one, we should get election day off as a national holiday. Uh, number two, we should have ranked choice voting so that you can actually uh, vote your true preference. And, and this would actually make it so that you could have a much more vibrant democracy where it's not just two parties. The fact is, uh, how many of you are Democrats? And it's cool, because I mean, there's a Democratic rally, more or less. All right. Um, the fact is, independents right now, self-identified independents, outnumber other Democrats or Republicans by the numbers. Uh, and so right now, there are many Americans who don't feel like their point of view is being expressed through the current two-party system. And so if you had ranked choice voting, then you'd have more diversity of points of view. You'd have a more vibrant democracy over time. Number three, we should make it easier to vote, not harder. We should have automatic voter registration when you get your driver's license or any form of government documentation. And so these are ways you can energize the democracy without changing the number of legislators. And here's a change that, to me, was common sense. But let's see if you like it. If you were a business and you got hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue on a single day, you would probably be pretty happy about that day, right? Um, also, if you had hundreds of millions of customers sending you that kind of money, you'd probably want to do something for them. So here's my proposal. We change tax day into revenue day. We give you all the day off. We thank you for the money. You get a thank you video with Oprah and The Rock and Tom Hanks <laughs> all saying like, thank you for funding our great democracy for another year. We invite families from every state in the union to celebrate in the White House lawn. Say, you know, it's like, just have this party being like, you know, we did it again for another year. You get to elect where to send the last 1% of your taxes. So you could say the National Endowment for the Arts or the US Forest Service or something that you love. And then you get an additional video from that department saying, this is what you funded. Thank you. Would this make you feel a little bit better about tax day? And this is fundamentally the relationship we have to change. Is right now our government is like this giant thing, and, and, and we're supposed to be grateful if we can get them to answer to us in any form or fashion. Uh, and we have to restore the true balance, which is the government should be working for us. We should be the bosses. Yes, we may send you money, but you should definitely thank us for that. Uh, and then we would feel like it's actually responding to us in a real way. We also have to end the revolving door between our government leaders and industry on the way out, because that's really wrecking us in various ways. And so uh, I want to end the revolving door by saying, if you work as a very high-level government regulator, you can't work for industry for 10 years afterwards. <laughs> and in order to change that culture, you need to change it at the top. So as president, I would say I will accept a lifetime ban on any paid speeches for personal gain, because you can't change a culture if the person at the top is going out and being like, sure, I'll like show up to your event and get paid a quarter million to schmooze your clients for an hour. Because then everyone else in the town looks up and says, oh, I guess that's how we do things here. 
So if you're going to change a culture, it has to start at the top, and I will be thrilled to be your president for eight years and then not take a dime afterwards, and no one will ever hear from me again. All right, thank you so much, Davenport. We need you to caucus on February 3rd. Let's win this whole thing. That's funny. He was going to clap until he was not going to hear from me again, and then he got sad for a second. Well, I appreciate it, man. I wanted to keep up business, and then hopefully leave the place in better shape than I found it. Give another round of applause to the next president of the United States, Andrew Yang. If you would like a selfie with Andrew, we're going to ask you to line up down this aisle where Lacey is waving, and then loop around the back. And that is Andrew Yang here in Davenport, the Lulac Club. This is Sean Leary with Sean Leary Show and QC Uncut. And we thank you for listening.